welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition in our Arbitral Insights podcast series. I'm Gautam Bhattacharya. I'm a partner in the London office at Reed Smith, and I'm very, very delighted to be joined by my colleague, Joyce Fong, who is a senior associate in our Singapore office. Hello, Joyce. Hello, Gautam. It's very nice to be speaking with you today. Oh, it's my pleasure. And, you know, just so everyone knows, although I'm based in London, I was based in our Singapore office for three and a quarter years. And I worked very closely with Joyce while I was there in Singapore. And I've also had the great pleasure of working with Joyce since I've been back in London. So, and Joyce and I have just recently finished a case. And we thought it would be very useful if we could um, share some practical insights and some of the perspectives which we got from that case, which was an international arbitration seated in Singapore, which threw up some very interesting points on um, the cross-examination of factual witnesses in arbitration. And especially when the parties are from different jurisdictions, are not used to the arbitration process, are not necessarily conversant or fluent in the English language, which was the language which, which governed the arbitration, and where not every jurisdiction is going to have the same level of familiarity with the importance of document retention, document creation, and other aspects like that. So Joyce and I thought it would be very useful for us to just talk through some of those points with you all today. So I wonder, Joyce, if I could just sort of start off by asking you to summarise for our listeners, what is the crucial role that factual witness testimony plays in international arbitration. Thank you, Gautam. So factual witness testimony is very important, especially when you need to prove disputed facts where they cannot be proved by written evidence. So sometimes you've got gaps in, for example, emails and documents, and you just can't piece together the facts. So that's where a factual witness is very helpful to help people understand the context and the thinking of the parties um, when they were doing a certain thing. And sometimes you also have the situation where you've got a contemporaneous document, but where, you know, just reading the text itself, it's not very clear what exactly the the person, the sender means. They could mean one of several things if we take the literal translation, but having the, you know, the person who sent the email explain what they were thinking and what they, they meant provide some context to help the reader understand the content of the document. Thank you, Joyce. And, you know, the um, importance of witness statements is something that's not limited just to arbitration. It's also something that's very prevalent and well utilised in litigation. Yes. And, and there's also been a recent ICC report on the accuracy of factual witness evidence. So I wonder whether you could just summarise for our our listeners some of these recent key developments, not least because witness statements are something which not all jurisdictions are familiar with. 
because some jurisdictions don't have the concept of witness statements. So I wonder if you could therefore just touch upon some of the recent changes in the English litigation procedure, which of course you're very familiar with, and also the recent ICC report on the accuracy of factual witness evidence. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, the difficulties which the tribunal or judge faces in trying to obtain an accurate recollection of events from factual witnesses, this is a very hot topic in the disputes world. In the English courts, um, the business courts have recently introduced very strict rules on trial witness statements, the aim being to make the drafting of witness statements more transparent to ensure that the witness statement that is submitted in the hearing, that is the witness's own recollection, the witness's own words, and not the lawyer's narration of the events, which is then sent for approval to the witness. And the English judges have, have take, are taking this very seriously. And there are very strict rules that are imposed on practitioners. So you have to, a lawyer such as you and me will, of course, have to sign um, a statement at the end of the witness statement confirming that you've abided by the requirements of the CPR in preparing the witness statement to confirm that all the checks and balances that the English courts have requested have been complied to the letter in preparing that witness statement. Similarly, in arbitration, um, this year the ICC published a report on the accuracy of fact witness memory in international arbitration. It is a really interesting report because it highlights that, you know, memories are not, a person's memory is not something that is fixed, it's malleable. So if you, if something happens today and you ask me about it in five years, my my recollection of what's happened may be affected by the things that, that occur between now and then. And this is not to say that the witness is being malicious or deliberately trying to hide or distort the truth. This is just that there is research which shows that this is just a, na- a natural occurrence which happens when a person experiences um, various events between, you know, something happened actually happening and the time when the witness is being asked to recollect what has happened. Thank you, Joyce. That's a very, very helpful summary. And, you know, one of the things which we take for granted is that many cases will involve witnesses who are very familiar with the arbitration process, who are very familiar and confident in the English language, and that sometimes documents may not be in multiple languages. They may just be just in English. But I think Some of the practical lessons which you and I learned from our most recent case working together is some of the issues which arise where multiple languages are involved and where witnesses are not always familiar with the concept of documentary disclosure and the fact that documents in the course of the last four, five, six years before the arbitration will have to be disclosed as part of the document disclosure process. So I wonder if you could just tell us a a few of the practical points that you feel uh, have arisen where multiple languages have been involved. So as you say, in in our recent case, there were multiple, there were documents which were in multiple languages, actually they were in a mixture of foreign language and English. So you have situations where you have a document and both sides are producing interpretation translations that differ. 
So, for example, we, we had a case, um, we had a document involved where the literal, in this case it was Korean, the literal Korean text said, I think something on mind. One side came up with a translation that said, I think he has something on his mind. Whereas the other part side came up with a translation that said, I think you have something on your mind. So completely different meanings, referring to completely different people. But, you know, the sender and recipient were both witnesses in the arbitration and both were of the view that their translation was the right one. So it could have been a miscommunication which happened at that time. Or it could also be that the gaps in the wording can support multiple translations and because it's been so long since the event occurred, it's very difficult to say for sure that one witness has an inaccurate recollection of events. And I think this is especially a problem where people are typing, um, are using instant messaging, because we tend to not type in complete sentences and not to give context. So for example, you and I, Gautam, might be exchanging emails on a topic, and then I may decide that actually it's easier for me to just quickly send Gautam an instant message on the site to, you know, to quickly explain what's going on. So if someone reads the email, they may get a bit of context on what's going on. But if they only have access to our instant message, they'll be asking themselves, scratching their heads and asking themselves, oh, what is she saying? Why is she saying this? What does she mean when she says he? So many people who could, could have been involved. So context is very important. And without context, there's bound to be um, differences in interpretation of documents. Absolutely. And, uh, and I mean, that's uh, a very nice uh, summary of the issues which we had. And, you know, and where, where a witness, I mean, of course, we can't talk about specifics of the case. But, you know, if a witness chooses to give evidence in a different language, so if they don't feel confident enough to be cross-examined in English, and they want to give their evidence in their, if you like, their native tongue. Tell us a little bit about some of the practical lessons which we learned most recently from our case. So I think I've observed that there is actually a spectrum of um, witnesses who give evidence in different languages. So you have on the one end people who may not understand English at all or who have a very, very basic understanding of English. Or you have someone who is actually pretty fluent in English, but wants a security blanket, you know, just to help them if they blank out or if they panic. So you've got a spectrum. And I think it, the situation is hardest, um, the less fluent a witness is in English, because then the witness can't really be a check and balance against what the interpreter is saying. So for example, if the witness is asked a question in English, if he or she understands English, then they would have had some understanding of the question the first time round. And then the translation just serves to reinforce or clarify the understanding. So that's given him or her a bit of time to think about the question and what his answer is going to be. But if the witness has zero understanding of English, then what happens is he or she is hearing the question for the first time from the mouth of the interpreter and then having to think about it while everyone is waiting for the interpretation. 
and then giving the answer in their native tongue and then waiting for that to be translated. I mean, the whole process is very long. And for an observer who doesn't speak the language, it's it can be quite tedious. And it's very easy for people to zone out during these times. So, you, you know, you've got to be very, very careful about how the witness comes across. But you mentioned earlier, Gautam, that people, you know, if lawyers and parties come from different backgrounds, then these may raise extra issues. And this is definitely the case, especially in international arbitration, where you don't have a lot of fixed rules. You have what you call soft rules based on parties' practices. So, you know, if you've been working with a certain group of law firms on, on the other side um, for several arbitrations, you kind of have an understanding of how things should work and things should happen. But if you know, you're working with lawyers from a different jurisdiction for the first time, they may be used to one thing and you may be used to another thing. So just some kind of practical points that arose from our arbitration. So you know, there, there were a few benign, what what seemed to be benign points that the other side raised objections to when, when it occurred. So, for example, the use of in-house interpreters to help witnesses. Um, the other side, you know, <laughs> made a song and dance about this as being an attempt to um, unduly interfere with the provision of evidence during the hearing. Similarly, the use of glossaries of terms to aid interpreters Again, very benign, um, and the other side were given the opportunity to, to comment on the gloss on the on the glossary itself, but then they decided that actually they didn't think it was appropriate. Another issue is the um, extent of pre-hearing discussions between the witness and the interpreter. Interestingly, on this one, I've you know on on the case that we did, the other side was not happy about any pre-meeting taking place. Again, they suggested that. Our client would use the meeting to improperly influence the interpreter. But the funny thing is, on another arbitration that I've done quite recently, um, it was almost taken as given and accepted that the witness and the interpreter would have a pre-hearing discussion, you know, just to introduce themselves to each other, break the eyes, get the interpreter familiar with technical terms or acronyms which may not be so obvious from the wit- from reading the witness's um, statement. So, I mean, I do think these are helpful discussions. And, you know, obviously, if parties are not, both sides cannot reach an agreement, then you can't do it. But it's just one of those things where it's meant to be benign. But if the other side's not used to it, they may see it as an opportunity, an attempt by you to improperly um, gain an advantage for your client in the arbitration. I mean, when situations like that happen, it's sometimes helpful to have a tribunal member who's fluent in the language to just act as a check and balance. So in our case, we were very fortunate to have a tribunal member who was fluent in the language. And at certain junctures, he was able to intervene and just say, actually, um, this is what the document says. Um, This is my reading of the document. Or actually, this is what the witness has just said to the interpreter, just to avoid any any flare-ups within the parties arising from misunderstanding. Because you're right. I mean, some words have particular meanings. They have a technical meaning, which is not just the everyday meaning. And even in the English language, there are some words which mean one thing to someone and mean something else to somebody else. So this is something that's certainly an issue. And you know, being specific about meaning is critical, especially in the case, because words can have different meanings. So Joyce, just to wrap up, I think we've got just the last thing I, I wanted to ask you is bearing in mind these, the points that you've very helpfully raised so far from a practical perspective, 
during the hearing, what sort of tips would you give for parties to be mindful of when they have the situation or a similar situation to the one that you and I have been discussing? So I think the key as always, not just for arbitrations where you have foreign languages, is short, keep the questions short and simple. The longer your questions are, then the higher the chance that the questions lose their meaning in translation. From a pra- from more pragmatic point of view, you know, a long question also requires a long um, translation and your interpreter may it increases the risk of the interpreter making an error in recording what you've just said and translating. So I think you do want to keep your questions short and sweet. Also, try not to use um, words that are too technical or too difficult because you do not know that your word is going to be translated properly to the witness. So where possible, I would say try to keep your questions simple, using simple words. And, you know, if you're the party that's abusing the witness, then obviously pre-brief your witness, tell, t- make sure the witness is aware of the do's and don'ts of the arbitration. I mean, e- even in our case, you know, sometimes the witness may naturally, for example, witnesses shouldn't be having their own side conversations with the interpreter because then no one understands what they're saying. But in the hearing that we did together, um, Gautam, um, the witness, just, it was just a natural descent into a conversation because he maybe misheard what the interpreter said or couldn't understand what she said. So literally all he did was you know, ask him to ask the interpreter for clarification. But when there was a bit too many of these back and forth between the witness and the interpreter, the other side jumped, pounced on the situation and basically said, oh, no, this is very inappropriate and should not be allowed and, and tried to cast aspersions on the witness. But as I mentioned earlier, in our case, it, we, we were very fortunate to have a tribunal member who spoke the language and who was able to just confirm independently that actually the exchanges are completely innocent. So, you know, so these, these things do matter. And then I think, the final point is, as always, pay attention to the tribunal. If a tribunal is looking bored, you may want to maybe take a break or um, change the style of cross-examining. Similarly, if it's your witness, then, you know, I suppose you may just want to make sure that the tribunal is paying attention to the key points your witness is saying. Otherwise, it may all be for nothing. Thank you, Joyce. Now, those are very, very practical and helpful points. And, you know, it reminds me of a case that... Uh, I did many years ago, which was a litigation, which involved having an interpreter, you know, in the box for a long time with the witnesses. And there were a number of witnesses. And the process of translation is very mentally tiring for the interpreter as well. So having regular breaks is good for everybody, the interpreter, the witness, the tribunal, the counsel, because following translated language from one to the other, and then answering the question, then translating it is very tiring and um, really does need to be done as effectively as possible. So Joyce, thank you very, very much. That was a, a really, really useful, practical run through these points. We hope our listeners of this podcast will find it helpful and we look forward to doing further podcasts for you. But for now, Joyce, bye-bye and speak to you soon. Bye, Gautam. Season. Arbitral Insights is a Reedsmith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. 
For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.